This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about embracing the journey in a world forever changed. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. I used to think that New Year's Eve was the most romantic holiday of the year. It's a time to reflect on the past and dream of the future. A time of resolutions, of promises to do better than we did last year. In the movies, it's the scene where the friends who are secretly in love finally kiss to the backdrop of clinking glasses and fireworks. It's a time to gather with family and friends, that perfect transitional point between the past and the future, when for a brief moment, we allow ourselves to feel hopeful about what's ahead. I still love New Year's Eve. I'm at my best when I'm dreaming, when I'm reflecting on the things I'm grateful for and imagining what life could become. But for some reason, this year, I'm finding it harder than usual to conjure up the festive spirit. The year is almost over, and I haven't yet nailed down a single resolution. This time last year, we released an episode called Dear 2020, our tongue-in-cheek breakup letter to what had been a very hard year of getting our bearings and grieving what was lost. 2021 has been challenging in a totally new way, the world has seemingly gone back to something like normal, and many of us have made changes, some of them big ones, but they haven't added up to their promised outcome. It's been a year of trying to fit together the pieces of this new life. In the beginning, it felt like putting together a really big, really complicated jigsaw puzzle. I knew it was going to be tough, but I wasn't deterred. I started with the corners and edges, just like always, the obvious parts that fit together. I kept trying the pieces, sure that eventually they'd all snap into place. But a year later, there's still a big gaping hole in the sky. And even after searching under the couch cushions and sifting through the vacuum cleaner bag, there are so many missing pieces that I'm starting to wonder if the effort is futile. Maybe this puzzle came with pieces missing. Or worse, maybe what I thought was a puzzle isn't actually a puzzle at all. Maybe it's only the beginning materials of a different kind of project. One that requires glue, wire, rubber bands, clay, and a whole lot of other tools that I've added to my cupboard in this new and very changed life. Don't get me wrong, it's not that I'm not up for the challenge. I will eventually get around to making those resolutions for the new year. It's just that after a year that has often felt like all we've done is change constantly, a year when we repeated the cycle of goal setting and planning and pivoting and executing over and over and over again, I'm tired. All I need is three or four days of staring at the wall and doing absolutely nothing, with no one needing me or asking me for anything. Or at least that's what I keep telling myself, followed by the immediate thought, well, that's not going to happen. It's a unique moment where a lot of us have felt very stuck within the boundaries of our homes and our lives. This is Hannah Fowler, one of our recent Kasama Collective graduates. Hannah lives in New York City, and she works in corporate communications. Each of our Kasama Collective trainees enters the program with an idea that we then help them build into an episode. Hannah's idea was this one that maybe our productivity-obsessed culture was making promises it couldn't deliver on. We've realized it's not going back to normal, and we can't actually solve our problems by living life more efficiently. 
Deep down, we'd both had a hunch that this was true, but still, we couldn't resist trying to snap the picture into place, especially since it seemed to be working so well for others. I feel surrounded by a culture where everyone inherently knows what they need to do and are evolving into their best selves at a younger and younger age. Right before the pandemic, I was making my way through David Allen's book, Getting Things Done. I was juggling the ever-changing demands of parenting three young kids, patching together freelance work, and attempting to submit my writing to magazines while chipping away at my novel in progress. I remember meeting with my writing group and telling them, I just need a way to systematize my life, to really get organized so nothing falls through the cracks. My friend Teresa Miller had read Getting Things Done. She'd also seen me through 15 years of highs and lows in writing and life. Teresa is one of the most productive writers I know. She's been publishing poems like clockwork for decades. Last year, she won the National Poetry Series. This year, she had a book published with Penguin. She was a shelter-in-place guest in one of my all-time favorite episodes, Borderline Fortune, which we re-released this season as Embrace the Process. She listened patiently as I touted the latest hacks I was learning. And then she said something like, everybody wants a life hack, but there are only so many hours in a day. Eventually, you've just got to pick one thing and focus, or you'll keep being frustrated. At the time, I didn't like her advice. I think what I was resisting then, what I'm resisting still, is uncertainty and self-doubt. If my life is perfectly ordered, there's less room for error, a smaller likelihood that I'll mess up or disappoint someone. Maybe if I'm organized enough, I can avoid uncertainty and self-doubt completely. But to truly understand my obsession with productivity and Hannah's, we have to go back further to the seed of that self-doubt. For me, it began when I was 13 years old. I can still remember the tremor of excitement in my brother's voice as he told me how Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People had changed his life. He was 17 at the time and had that older brother cool that I was constantly trying to emulate. I remember the way my pulse raced before he'd even gotten through the list. Be proactive. Begin with the end in mind. Put first things Think first. Think win-win. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Synergize. Sharpen the saw. Reading that book as a teenager, I felt like I'd discovered a secret portal that would transform me from the girl who would get too lost in imaginary worlds to successfully clean her room into a productive member of society who accomplished every goal before me. And it worked, sort of. I still lived in my imagination, but I also learned to become driven and focused, to make checklists and five-year plans. I shared a bit of that journey way back in season one in an episode titled, My Foolproof Plan for Fame and Fortune. For Hannah, the draw of productivity was similar. In a world where everyone seemed to know exactly where they were going, she craved that sense of direction. For most of my life, I've had this uneasy sense that everyone around me knew exactly where they were headed while I was still trying to find my path. From early on, I was seduced by productivity culture, addicted to the never-ending stream of how-to books, videos on habit stacking, the best heroes for the indecisive. For years, I've been following productivity gurus on YouTube, trying to master productivity hacks in a feigned attempt to gain control of my life. I want a quick fix to my inability to find my path. I want to find my job or my passion and never look back. The lore of productivity hacks was that they promised a way to order the parts of ourselves that felt messy, 
For me, that began when I was a little girl. For Hannah, it began by watching her parents. My parents modeled steadiness, responsibility, and gratitude. Their singular work ethic carried them through the intensity of life and work, and their sense of purpose never came at the exclusion of their love for our family. My mom worked in publishing before entering the TV industry. As a woman in a high-pressure cooker environment, surrounded by men in every meeting, she took snide remarks left and right, but no matter what was happening in her life, she woke up each day, dressed herself in a chic outfit, and went to work ready to take on the world. My dad was a New York City cop who worked his way up to a sergeant, living through 9-11, the deaths of close friends, and unimaginable experiences that I'm still not fully allowed to know the details of today. Often they'd come home from an exhausting day of work, still in their work clothes, and step in to be a Girl Scout leader or run to Models to replace our old sneakers. I remember watching my dad under the fluorescent lights at a Models one night, the creases on his forehead, the way his eyes watered after a long day at work. But as soon as my sister and I tried on our sneakers, his face transformed and he flashed the biggest smile as we flew around the store in our new shoes, our arms outstretched, laughing. Hannah's favorite book is Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed. Hannah says that the way that Cheryl Strayed describes her single mother in that book is how Hannah feels about her parents. She writes, she was imperfect. She made mistakes but she was her best self, more often than it's reasonable for any human being to be. And that is the gift of my life. I'm almost 20 years older than Hannah, closer to her parents' age than hers, but I still remember exactly how it felt to be where she is now, to watch and admire as my parents and then later my siblings modeled a sense of purpose and focus that I hoped I was capable of, but that always eluded me. I didn't know until we did this episode just how much Hannah and I had in common. We were both kids who had plenty of interests, but struggled to find a path that would lead us to a certain future. Even as a teenager, my closest friends always seemed so sure of themselves. They understood their strengths at an early age and then played to those strengths until they landed in a career that was the natural endpoint for their passion. Meanwhile, I was jumping from one thing to the next in an attempt to find a passion. I took guitar lessons, only to quit a few months later. I wrote for my high school newspaper, but felt exhausted by the time I chased out my stories. I joined the stage crew for school plays, I dabbled with the clarinet, but even as I was learning those things, I always felt slightly lost. The only thing in my life I had ever stuck with was gymnastics. From the time I was old enough to run, I was tumbling through round-off back handsprings and leaping across the balance beam. But by the time I was in eighth grade, I was so burnt out from all of the intense training and long hours that when I finally decided to quit, all I felt was relief. I tried and even had fleeting success at so many things. I ran cross country for a few seasons and even tried out for the lacrosse team. But my efforts to muster the energy for new activities repeatedly fell flat. In college, I was told that once I found the classes I liked, picked my major, and got my first job, everything would click and I'd naturally find my way to narrow down what I was supposed to do. So I threw myself into every possible interest and passion I'd ever entertained. It's only fitting that my first job out of college was in a rotational program where I switched my job every three months. I took writing classes at night and did extra programs after work. I squeezed in as much as I could out of life, but I never seemed to be able to stick the landing. At 25, I feel as lost as I did at 10 years old, when I'd pack up my guitar with tears in my eyes, watching as another attempted passion slip away from me. 
Like Hannah, I was a serious gymnast until the eighth grade. Like Hannah, I taught myself the guitar. And 20 years later, the songs that I learned then are still the only ones that I can play. Like Hannah, I tried dozens of activities in search of one that would stick. I flirted with a saxophone, tennis, ballet, theater, volleyball, art. I found out by accident that I was good at running, mostly because I wasn't good at the ball sports I tried. Like Hannah, I wrote for my high school newspaper and was briefly a journalism major before switching to pre-med and then English Lit. And finally, with just three semesters to go, creative writing, which I loved, but offered no tangible path to employment. Meanwhile, that same brother who had recommended Stephen Covey's Seven Habits was in med school, pursuing the dream of being a doctor that he'd had since childhood. For decades, I've watched him pursue that path without wavering. I was never interested in medicine like he was, but I did want what he had, a path that would lead to a certain career packed with purpose, job security, that was valued by society. So much of how we view our journey depends on who we're traveling with. For Hannah, there's one person who's been with her from the very beginning. Most people grow up looking in the mirror, but I grew up looking at my twin sister, Sonia. We're fraternal twins, so we don't look identical, but we came into the world understanding each other, experiencing each step of life together. She's my best friend, the one person in the world I've always known I can count on. Does she still scream at me when I accidentally borrow her shirt and forget to carefully fold it back in its place? Obviously. We've had our moments, but she is and has always been my anchor, and I know how lucky I am to have her in my life. But the thing about having a partner to walk with you from your very first day of life is that you're constantly aware of how things could be. While I was wandering through experiences in search of a direction, from an early age, Sonia was steady, clearly the offspring of my parents, with her purposeful work ethic and strong sense of place in life. She was a star softball player, was effortlessly hilarious, and such a joy to be around that I watched as an entire friend group formed around us in middle school that we're still close to today. I admired her, loved her, sometimes wanted to be her. I knew that in this one core way, we weren't the same, but I couldn't stop myself from trying. We need family members and role models and thinkers and leaders who can give us the vision to shift our paradigms, who can help us to articulate not just our New Year's resolutions, but our life goals. I don't begrudge Stephen Covey or my brother or any of the other productivity gurus. They've taught me a lot, and there's nothing wrong with productivity. That is, unless it stops us from truly getting to know who we are. I'll be right back after this short break from one of our sponsors. Every time the holidays come around, I seem to revert to the worst version of myself. So this year, I decided to get some help before that happens. Since BetterHelp, the world's leading online counseling platform, is our newest sponsor, I figured I'd try it out for myself. BetterHelp removes some of the traditional barriers that go with in-person therapy. Instead of having to rehash my past repeatedly, on BetterHelp's website, you just click through an intake questionnaire. It only took me eight minutes to complete. You can filter for gender, age, religion, and more. I got matched with my therapist within 24 hours, and I was amazed at how affordable it was. My first appointment is next week, and I'll let you know how it goes. Join me in doing some preemptive holiday counseling. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month with the link betterhelp.com slash listener. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash listener. 
what do you do, has become synonymous with who are you and what have you done? As if it's a given that we are workers first, not human beings who work. The information scientist Gilly Leshed and computer scientist and cultural theorist Phoebe Sengers found when they talk to people about their to-do lists, they abide by the norm of we need to be productive citizens of the world. Doing more is doing good. I had to sit with that quote for a while before I could even question its legitimacy. Isn't doing more doing good? Aren't we all here to be productive citizens of the world? The subtle flaw of that worldview is that we're always in action, but never in process. Always accomplished, but never transitioning. In his Wired Magazine story, science and technology writer Clive Thompson describes the history of what he calls American to-do behavior. He writes, Benjamin Franklin was among the first to pioneer to-do lists, creating a checklist of virtues, temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, tranquility, justice, chastity, moderation, that he intended to practice every day. Thompson goes on to describe to-do lists as a curiously moral type of software. Nobody opens Google Docs or PowerPoint thinking, this will make me a better person. But with to-do apps, that ambition is front and center. Everyone thinks that with this system, I'm going to be the best parent, the best child, the best coworker, the most organized, punctual friend, says Nomique Mongian, a product manager at the book sales tracking firm BookNet, and a self-admitted serial organizational app devotee. When you start using something to organize your life, it's because you're hoping to improve it in some way. You're trying to solve something. I cringed reading that section of the article this past summer. I had made a to-do list with the above article on it, thinking one more productivity hack would finally be the quick fix I needed. The problem with productivity is that whether we're talking about work or health or even rest, there's always a bigger or perhaps smaller and more efficient dream that we should be chasing. You're only 50 bullet journals away, six cups of water away, or some tangible, seemingly harmless anecdote that will shed this outer layer of stress and exhaustion and reveal our true hidden selves underneath. Even our self-care has standards. Scroll through any Instagram influencer's feed and you'll see vision boards and bullet journals and infographics to measure your me time and remind you that taking care of yourself isn't just a good idea, it's an art project. Now we're supposed to be working four hours instead of 40 so we can walk those 10,000 steps, master that 15-minute meal, make our homes into zen sanctuaries, curate capsule wardrobes that spark joy, all in the name of thriving, of being satisfied and joyful and fulfilled and purposeful and rested. And it's exhausting. I started to realize that our culture of to-do lists and quick fixes and hacks condition us to think that there's a right and wrong way to be ourselves. I'll never forget the moment years ago when I was in a season of deep depression. And I told my therapist that I knew I should be doing things differently, but I just couldn't summon the willpower. She interrupted me and said, how about instead of saying should, you say intent. I remember pausing to take this in. It wasn't terrible advice, but that correction made me feel ashamed of myself in the very moment when I thought I was allowed to be a mess. We don't live in a society that celebrates feeling lost, wandering, and sitting with our pain. We don't create space for those things. We don't like to unveil the darker, more complicated parts of ourselves that require the most work. We're constantly trying to figure out how to get unstuck, 
It's a valid reaction to the past two years where we've had to continually tweak our lives. And having so much time to ourselves in isolation made it seem as if we could attain it. But this idealized version of ourselves isn't possible and never was. My obsession with productivity got unhacked by accident, or more accurately, by circumstance. When I started Shelter in Place on March 17th, 2020, as a daily podcast, I wasn't trying to impress anyone. I just needed a way to keep myself sane in a time when I was barely keeping it together. The irony of my story is that I became the most productive I've ever been at the point when I stopped worrying about productivity. I've done more writing in the last 21 months than I did in the last 21 years. And yet my motivations for doing that work have been less about productivity and more about survival. Because I had to work fast, I did learn productivity hacks. I blocked off my time and used timers and figured out which parts of the work I could do quickly and which parts I needed to slow down. It was that process of learning how to work under a deadline week after week that gave me the tools to pass along to people like Hannah. But if there's one thing the last year has hit home for me, it's that productivity has its limits and also its liabilities. I think the tension I felt all my life, that Hannah has felt too, is that productivity stands in direct opposition to uncertainty and growth. It promises that if we get organized enough, we don't have to deal with the messy middle. Maybe a kinder way to live is to give each other permission to not have it all figured out. To allow each other to be a little unhacked and unhinged. To make mistakes even. I wonder if we could see the process as the story. Not just part of the story, but the narrative arc. And to see that messy evolution as a necessary part of our growth. Recently, a friend who's been working in audio much longer than I have asked me about our production process. I told her how we approach script writing and audio editing and sound design and which project management tools we use for a fully remote team and what checklists and spreadsheets and guides I developed both for myself and for our trainees and how I'd basically redone our project management system in an attempt to make them more accessible for the very different needs of our fall cohort. And then I admitted that no matter how hard I try and how many hours I spend getting more organized, I can't seem to pen the process down. That life often gets in the way. People get sick, work projects come up, people move or get new jobs or realize they want something different from the experience or just don't have the bandwidth that they thought they would. Doing daily episodes six days a week in season one and even doing weekly episodes in season two and three has taught me that there's a certain part of the creative process that won't be pinned down, no matter how far ahead you work or how well you plan. My friend paused and then said, I am so comforted to hear this. And it's exactly the same for me. You're the most organized person I know. If the process keeps shifting and changing for you, it must be this way for everybody. I've thought about her comment a lot over the weeks because as soon as she said it, it was like I was looking at myself in the mirror. But in my reflection, there were two versions of myself. One was the person I actually am. And the other was the little girl with the messy room whose problem could be boiled down to a lack of organization or direction or efficiency. But the real problem, it turns out, is that I am messy. 
Because to be human is to be in process all the time, adjusting and flexing and trying your best, even as you acknowledge that there will always be somebody doing it better. Growing up, my dad always used to repeat this quote from Albert Einstein. It's not the strongest of the species that survives. It's not the fastest. It's not the smartest, but the most adaptable. Few things in life train us for transition, and yet learning to be flexible and adapt may just be one of the most essential skills we can cultivate. When we began the Kasama Collective almost exactly a year ago, we built it on that belief. From the beginning, we've designed the program to look a lot like Hannah and I have experienced life. Our trainees do something different every single week. They never settle anywhere long enough to become masters. For the more structured personalities, this can be a little tough sometimes. But over time, something remarkable happens. People learn to adapt, to adjust, to understand which parts of the process they love and which parts they'd rather leave to someone else. They see that process from all angles, and so their understanding becomes not just wide, but deep. They know how an idea that starts so small and simple can take on a life of its own, how it can draw you out of yourself and push you to places that you're not sure you want to go. They understand how every story has characters and conflict and truth and pain, no matter what the genre. They see that sound can be a story the same as words, that there's an art even to managing projects. But most of all, they understand that creativity, like life, is messy. It's a process, one that productivity can't fix. It can abide by deadlines, but it won't be rushed. It's less like a to-do list or even like a puzzle and more like a found art sculpture. You can systematize your puzzle pieces, putting all of the edges in one pile and organizing by color. Often these are worthy efforts, but if it turns out that the thing you're building isn't a puzzle, but a collage, you have to learn new rules for building. You can fight the process and give up, or you can let yourself get immersed in the shapes and colors until finally the 3D picture takes shape. It's not neat and tidy. There might be some visible flaws, things you wish were different, but that difference is what makes it interesting. It's what makes it yours. For so long, I viewed my inability to stick to a certain path or career as a weakness. But perhaps I've been adaptable all along, building my life in various evolutions, trying out different prototypes of myself. This past COVID year felt like it ruined me in a lot of ways. And there are times I would rather settle in the feeling of being broken. Perhaps all the time I've spent jumping around from sports to jobs to people has prepared me for this very moment in my life to adapt and continue to put one foot in front of the other. Years ago, when I was complaining about never having enough time and feeling like I was never getting anywhere with my goals, my friend Angela let me borrow her copy of Designing Your Life by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans, two Stanford professors who urge us to approach life the way that a designer would. Doing this means undoing a lot of our productivity-obsessed thinking. Failures aren't failures, they're the attempts you need to try before you find your way to the idea that's finally going to work. You don't have to find one right idea. You need a lot of ideas so that you can explore any number of possibilities. Today, Designing Your Life is one of the books that we recommend to our Kasama Collective trainees, which is how Hannah found it. For the first time in a while, with my computer and phone off to the side, with my notifications and incessant scrolling paused, I felt like I grabbed onto something sturdy, 
Burnett and Evans build a case around the amount of hours people spend trying to figure out their lives as opposed to actually living their lives. They write that this type of worry and analysis keeps us spinning in circles, spending weeks, months, or years sitting on that couch or at that desk or in a relationship trying to figure out what to do next. This is not designing your life. This is obsessing about your life. It's as if life were this great big DIY project, but only a select few actually got the instruction manual. Evans and Burnett called me out in a way I didn't expect. It occurred to me that watching YouTube hacks on organization and meticulously planning my life was my way of trying to unlock this so-called instruction manual. I've poured myself into productivity tools as a means to escape the pain of failure, to just do away with all the messiness and ruin in between. I'm afraid of change. I sometimes don't have the energy to fail and then adapt and fail and adapt again. Yet this fragile, complicated, painful part of my life is quite possibly another tiny evolution shaping me not into my best self, but into my most adaptable self yet. I've gotten to live a bit of life with Hannah these past few months. I've heard the excitement in her voice when she gives herself permission to just chase her curiosity, to let it be okay that she's in process. And then, just a couple of weeks ago, Hannah got a job offer at the New York Times. It's an incredible way to end this chapter of her life and begin another. But she also knows now that that transition is all part of the story. In fact, it is the story, because it's nice to get things done, to feel productive, but it's the people we become in that process that makes us who we are. As always, if you listen to the very end of the episode, you'll hear Shelter in Place outtakes, our little Easter egg to thank you for sticking around. But first, I wanna share with you that we're closing 2021 by opening a project that's close to our hearts. Our Kasama Labs explores both the science and the art of audio storytelling. It's a self-paced program built flexible for busy people who might need a walk in the woods more than they need time in front of their screens. Tomorrow is the last day to get our early bird price, and we still have a few spots left. You can find details about the program and a link to register at shelterinplacepodcast.org. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Additional music and sound effects for this episode come from Storyblocks. Nate Davis is our creative director, Sarah Edgel is our design director, and Melissa Lent is our project manager. Hannah Fowler was our lead writer on this episode, Nikki Schaefer was our assistant audio editor, and Meridian Waters was our assistant producer. Until next time, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis. And now if you're still listening, here's a little outtake. So, Bethany, how do you feel about this project? Between getting my business ready for 2022, getting everybody in their great grandmother, I, I all of a sudden I have like 5,000 clients in January. <laughs> like I have to get them all set up. I had the audacity to give my team members two weeks off in December. They, like there is no way, literally Jesus could come down and be like, if you create this, COVID will never be a thing anymore. And I'd be like, sorry, Jesus, I can't do it.